All right, welcome to the uh, March 2020 edition of the Congress of Neurological Surgeons Journal Club podcast. This is Dr. Raphael Vega, your host. And today I'm pretty excited to discuss uh, one of these papers that, that have interest to all of us, um, and that will be the outcome after decompressive craniectomy for middle cerebral artery infarction and the timing of the intervention. We have uh, Dr. Van der Munkhoff as the uh, senior author from the Neurosurgical Center of uh, Amsterdam. And as guest faculty, we have Dr. Siddiqui and Dr. Davies, uh, both from the University of Buffalo, uh, to provide insight. And uh, also we have our CNS resident fellow, Dr. Dasani, uh, who's currently at the University of Buffalo, who'll be discussing the paper and asking questions at the end. So uh, without further ado, you know, if Dr. Uh, Van der Munkhoff uh, could start with a summary of the paper. Um, yeah, so um, we, our, our center participated in a, in, a, in a previous randomized controlled trial uh, studying the effects of decompressive craniectomy and uh, middle cerebral uh, artery infarction. Over the last years, we, we tried to um, summarize the, the follow-up of the patients that were um, uh, operated uh, since the trial. So we analyzed um, these patients um, and a uh, considerable amount of these patients underwent surgery uh, more than 48 hours after stroke onset. In the current clinical guidelines, um, the time elapsed since stroke onset is, is, a, is a criterion um, uh, whether patients should undergo surgery or not. So uh, current guidelines advise to uh, perform surgery in patients who are within 48 hours of stroke onset um, whereas patients that are beyond that time should not undergo surgery. Um, so we specifically looked and compared the outcome of patients uh, who underwent surgery after that time point. And basically we saw no statistical significant difference in outcome between the two groups, which is contra contrary to the, um, uh, the current clinical guidelines. And we thought it was um, important to publish these results. Makes sense. You know, one thing just to, uh, out of curiosity, you know, because I know everybody's practice is a little bit different that may not always go within the uh, guidelines, but I, I saw here the European randomized control study that talked about less than 60 years of age and then less than 48 hours. But to kind of go a little bit deeper into the clinical decision-making of when a person does go to the OR and when they don't, like when, like for example, what would be a typical patient you know, that would go to the OR? I mean, would they have to present with clinical findings or symptoms, or how, how did that work for you guys? Yeah, so, so usually when, when patients suffer from a, um, from a large middle cerebral artery stroke, uh, in, in, in the Netherlands, they're, they're, uh, they, they first undergo thrombolysis, um, and then when they show any clinical deterioration in the hours following uh, stroke diagnosis, um, they usually undergo repeated CT scanning to see whether any edema uh, develops. So when edema develops and when patients deteriorate in their uh, neurological status, then usually neurologists uh, call us to, um, to ask whether we can perform a decompressive craniectomy. Um, so it's, in most patients, it's a combination of uh, clinical deterioration uh, and signs of increasing edema on repeated CT scanning. Right. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the same for you as it is <clears throat> for some of us, but you know, usually 
for myself, I usually notice that patients develop some of these symptoms, or should I say their swelling becomes symptomatic usually after the 48-hour period, you know, from their onset of stroke as opposed to early onset. I don't know if you, if this is part of what led to your guys' interest in this after 48 hours. Yeah, well, so to, to be honest, I think for, when I speak for myself, I think most of my neurosurgical colleagues usually were not that interested in, um, in, in the time elapsed since stroke onset when neurologists present their patients to us. So we basically, we, we usually look at the patient and look at the uh, neurological status and look at the CT scanning and then whether there has been 48 hours elapsed since stroke onset or 56 hours, for us that's not a big difference. So in mm-hmm. that perspective, we were also quite surprised when we read the neurological uh, international guidelines uh, stating that 40-hour uh, time limit. Uh, and. and to be honest, I was I was not aware of these clinical guidelines uh, up to recently, uh, and I, I agree that the, the the clinical status of the patient is for us much more important than the time elapsed since stroke onset. Right, right. And one question, just for me before we go to the others, you know, did you notice a difference with respect to dominance, you know, versus left side and right side, you know? Uh, did that play into it for you guys at all, or did you notice a difference? Well, in, in, let's say in the, in the first years that we did the decompressive uh, craniectomies for stroke patients, yes, we, ha- we, we all thought that uh, right-sided stroke patients uh, would be good candidates, whereas left-sided stroke patients um, would not be good candidates. Uh, because, of course, we all appreciate our, our speech uh, very much, and, and, and we assume that that's critical for, for, uh, for survival with kind of a, uh, acceptable quality of life. And mm-hmm. to, to further go into that matter, we performed a um, quality of life study, uh, which was published in 2015, and it's one of the references in this, in this current paper, in which we did uh, in-depth interviews and quality of life measurements in uh, surviving patients with both dominant and non-dominant strokes. And we were quite surprised, actually, to see that there was not a big difference in quality of life between dominant and non-dominant stroke patients who underwent decompressive craniectomy. So since then, we, uh, I think the dominant or non-dominant side for stroke patients has become less important in our center. Um, although I, I still know that there are other centers in the Netherlands where they are uh, putting more emphasis on the uh, on the side of the stroke, but yeah, we examined it, and I think we did really uh, we really tried to do our best to to have in-depth interviews with both families uh, and the patients themselves, and we measured all kind of quality of life skills, and um, we didn't find a um, a difference between the between the dominant and non-dominant uh, strokes. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to open this up to uh, Dr. Siddiqui, see if he's had um, some questions or insight into this as well. Thank you very much. I, I think this is a pretty interesting paper. We, we might not recognize here across the pond, but the guidelines that are available 
for the U.S. Uh, population are actually identical to those that are there for the European population. Yeah. So I'm yeah. looking at them right now. From 2014, the guidelines are for patients under 60 within 48 hours despite maximal medical therapy. So that's an interesting phrase I want to talk to you about in a second. Um, this is what's recommended class one level of evidence B. Decompressive craniectomy in patients older than 60 and later time points is class 2B level of evidence C. So, so the, the data that is constructing the guideline is the same, but in practice, it doesn't seem to be really as embedded as it may be potentially at yours on your side. So, so the first question I have for you is, this phrase of maximal medical therapy. So can you define what you consider maximal medical therapy in the Netherlands for this particular study? Uh, yeah, so when we participated in the Hamlet trial, which was one of the, one of the European randomized controlled trials, in that trial we compared decompressed craniectomy to uh, maximal conservative therapy, and, and that included uh, intravenous uh, mannitol, hyperventilation, uh, invasive uh, intracranial pressure monitoring, um, sedation. Um, and then we, at the end of those trials, we concluded that decompressive craniectomy was, was a better treatment than maximal conservative therapy. So I must admit that since then, we actually do not do all these conservative medical treatments anymore when neurologists offer us patients for decompression. Um, basically, when, the pa when we think the patient might benefit from decompressive surgery, we go for surgery right away. So we do not try the intravenous mannitol or sedation or invasive monitoring of the ICP anymore. We have done that while we were participating in those previous trials, but since those trials showed that decompression, decompressive surgery was superior, we, we kind of let all the other treatments uh, go and um, go for surgery right away when we think the patient is a good candidate. So from our standpoint, uh, we really have gone away from sedation and ICP monitoring these patients as well. The one yeah. thing we, at least in our center, still actively practice is initiation of hyperosmolar therapy with either 2 or 3% uh, saline transfusions okay. yeah. Um, yeah. to bring the sodium up. Is that something you're still doing preemptively no. in some of these patients or no? No, although I, I agree with you that it might be a good option and, and it might prevent surgery in some of uh, potential surgical candidates, uh, but I must admit that we do not do that anymore, no, no. Well, so that's an, in, that's an, that's an interesting yeah. distinction and it's good for the audience to know. Um, yeah. we, we might have adopted a very aggressive <laughs> approach since these trials, I mean, yeah, I must admit that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, philosophically, as uh, Dr. Vegas sort of pointed to the same question as well, is that oh, we do understand that most of these stroke patients will swell from anywhere from two to potentially up to seven days after surgery. And uh, some of these are fast pro progressors and clearly can be identified on their 24-hour CT scan. And there are others that sometimes take up to 72 hours before you're saying, hmm, starting to become sleepy, the edema is really accumulating. Is that part of the reason? Because we feel that decompression is appropriate 
whenever it is needed, whenever the patient starts to meet the criteria of significant shift and uh, neurologic correlate. Uh, is that really what you glean from this uh, study of yours as well? We basically advised to monitor the patient um, uh, during those first days after stroke onset. Um, as soon as you observe clinical deterioration, uh, which is uh, um, matched with, with um, uh, increasing edema on, on repeated imaging, then a patient should be a um, potential candidate for surgery. That's, um, that's, our main, um, one, yeah, that's our main conclusion, actually. Yeah. Excellent. Regardless of the time period that has elapsed since And the final question, and that has to do with mechanical thrombectomy for some of these patients. So there yeah. is now increasing interest in, in ongoing trials, and there are trials doing this work in Europe as well as in North America. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we, are, our, our, our neuroradiologists do it very often now, and uh, our center was one of the first to participate in those trials. So we right. actually tried to, uh, to see whether the um, amount of decompressive surgeries went down over the last years. Uh, we, um, we were not able to see a trend yet, um, but I right. foresee that we're going to do less decompressive craniectomies because, well, many patients who undergo uh, in, in, uh, intra-arterial uh, thrombectomy, they, they recover impressively fast. Um, so I'm sure that, um, yeah, when, um, uh, when that therapy becomes more common, that I think that uh, less patients will, uh, will, will need to undergo decompressive craniectomy. Yeah. Right. And so the question in that regard is that for, for purposes of your study, there seemed to be a six-hour cutoff. And as you might be aware, there are randomized trials now completed that suggest that patients can be treated with good perfusion up to 24 hours, such as the DAWN trial. And currently, there are ongoing trials to uh, perform mechanical thrombectomy in patients with low aspect scores uh, as well, which means patients who previously were not being treated either here or there, which were routinely the ones that were going for mechanical thrombectomy, uh, they may be a distinct advantage in some of these patients by reducing edema through mechanical thrombectomy and a fairly significant survival benefit. Um, we recently reviewed a study just like that which suggested that if you did not do uh, with low aspects, if mechanical thrombectomy was not performed, the likelihood of a good outcome was in the 1% range, whereas with mechanical thrombectomy, even with low aspect, the good outcome jumped up to about 30%. So it was quite remarkable. Yeah, I was wondering absolutely. if you're starting to see that. Well, so we actively looked at the at the uh, the prevalence and the incidence of the uh, of the decompressive craniectomies, and we try to correlate that with the amount of patients that were um, presented at our neurological department. Um, but we, we haven't seen the trend yet, but I'm sure that that must come out of the numbers in the, in the, in, in the coming years. Yeah. Okay. Although I also Thank think you. that 
because we're now a regional center for the um, intraarterial thrombectomy, so uh, the amount of patients that get transferred to our center is, is increasing uh, every month, actually. So uh, that might, well, confound the, uh, the numbers, of course. So it's uh, what we're, we're observing it uh, from month to month. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dr. Davies, uh, do you have any insight to provide some thoughts, questions? Yeah, absolutely. I would actually like to um, take a sec to think about these systems of care issues. I think it's a particularly a treat to be able to uh, talk with you in a European setting um, and see how that might compare with sort of the U.S. setting. Obviously, there's a lot of heterogeneity even within the U.S. setting, but there's been a lot of discussion about stroke as a neurosurgical disease. And we're seeing um, this uh, in increasingally as neurointerventionalists, um, uh, our neurosurgeons and neurologists and neuroradiologists, uh, but, uh, you know, at what point does the neurosurgeon become involved in your system uh, and how is it that, you know, evolving those systems of care so that we as the neurosurgeons are involved earlier might help in this pattern of identifying patients who could benefit um, getting them on the table quicker and potentially doing the hemicranies and more when they could benefit. Yeah, so I, 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 I must be careful because, of course, I cannot speak for the for the for the whole situation in the Netherlands because also within the Netherlands there are quite well there are quite some differences. For example, in our center, we um, there are no neurosurgeons that perform any neuroradiological uh, interventions, uh, whereas there are other cities in the Netherlands uh, where there are neurosurgeons involved in coiling of aneurysms and probably also in intra-arterial thrombectomies. In, in, in our center, I must admit that there, is, there are very short lines between the uh, neurologists and the neurosurgeons and the, the neuroradiologists. So um, most, uh, lots of these patients are, are discussed by the three uh, specialties. Uh, we get together and try to, uh, to come up with the best uh, treatment. And when um, the, neuro the neurologists who are in lead, usually uh, with stroke patients, think that the decompressive craniectomy is, is needed, they, they, they ask us. And uh, even in patients in, in whom they presume that a, uh, an indication for decompressive craniectomy might occur in, in, in the coming 24 hours, they usually ask us to, uh, to look at the patient and to uh, discuss the case with them. So, um, but... Yeah, as probably in, in the, as, as the situation in the U.S., there are large regional differences uh, also, also here in, 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 uh, in Holland. Yeah, I expect. Um, at our center, we, we find it difficult to relinquish the stroke patients, I guess is what I would say. So our fellows get involved as soon as the stroke page goes out. We're um, obviously involved in neurointervention. Um, but then we are actively surveilling these folks in addition to the critical care team and the uh, neurology team. Is this patient going to need a hemicrany? Is this patient going to need further neurosurgical care? You know, maybe that's uh, – I think it's good to have more eyes on the patient than fewer, but obviously it's, it's uh, using up some resources, important time resources and, and personnel resources. 
So there's always yeah, a trade-off. The good thing is that that before the um, the uh, the introduction of the intraarterial thrombectomy, um, lots of stroke patients uh, basically stayed in their in their uh, smaller regional hospitals uh, around mm-hmm. our academic center. And um, and then when there was an indication for decompressive craniectomy, they would they would be transferred to our center. And and, and the Netherlands is still a very small country, so transfer times are not that long. But then still, in in several of these patients, there was significant amount of delay. Uh, whereas now, lots of these patients, they are transferred already to the neurology department of our center to undergo intraarterial thrombectomy by the neuroradiologist. So they're already in our hospital itself. So then also the delay time for to have to, to undergo decompressive craniectomy has also gone down, I guess. Although I, haven't, I have not the numbers here to, to show it to you, but um, that's at least my, um, my feeling. Um, so that's that's probably a benefit of the centralization of the severely affected patients within our uh, academic center. One other question that I had relating to systems has to do with how do we evolve the evidence base? Uh, we obviously want to practice uh, medicine based on data, but that becomes, as you correctly point out in your discussion, increasingly difficult as you have uh, trial data out there. And now all of a sudden we sort of feel constrained by these inclusion-exclusion criteria, which may or may not actually be prognostic factors. How can we evolve the evidence base to, to move beyond what's already been published to the folks that we think can benefit? Yeah, well, one important thing I think is that we should try to combine uh, the results of patients from many centers. Uh, for example, what in, 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 a, in a previous version of our paper, we tried to do um, uh, subgroup analysis. Uh, so we try to uh, to specifically look at the patients older than 60 years old, and then look uh, how their outcome was. Uh, for example, in patients who only had a middle cerebral artery stroke, or in patients who had stroke in more um, arterial uh, areas. And then, so we were able to show that patients older than 60 years old who had, besides a middle cerebral artery uh, infarction, also an anterior cerebral artery infarction, none of them uh, survived favorably. But of course, then, then, then we were talking about 11 patients per subgroup or four patients per subgroup. So statistically, that's, that's too weak. Uh, whereas if we would be able to combine our data, let's say with other centers in the Netherlands or even in Europe or even uh, across the ocean, it it, it shouldn't be that difficult. We could set up a database uh, with anonymized data and if everybody would be willing to put in their outcome data, you might uh, analyze big data and then you might um, find perhaps subgroups that really benefit from surgery, but also subgroups that really do not benefit from surgery. So that's, I think, is an important step that we should try to make in uh, in the coming years. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the cardiologists have really um, began to tap into this idea of the registry trials and how can we use real-world data to really start to evolve uh, with with as much power potentially as the randomized clinical trial, um, which can be difficult and expensive, of course. Of course, and another thing, what, is, what I think is very difficult is that, of course, we we make this this distinguishment uh, between good outcome and poor outcome, and um, but it 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 
differs so much from one patient to another. Some patient in a, in a, in a wheelchair might really uh, love his life, <laughs> whereas uh, in, in our uh, outcome he was categorized as poor outcome, whereas other people uh, who are still able to, um, to take care of themselves might be very unhappy with their outcome. So our outcome scales are, of course, always a bit artificial. We try to, to do our best. But um, at the end, of course, it's, it, the question is all about quality of life. And that's also another task, I think, for the future to try to come up with better um, outcome skills that better represent the real outcome for, for a specific patient. Very true. Thank you. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, uh, Dr. Desai, uh, do you have uh, some questions prepared to pertain to the paper? Thank you for having me on the call. I think the most important part of your paper, like everyone has said and agreed upon, is that the clinical examination should determine whether a decompressive craniectomy is offered to a patient. You know, we all have patients in ICUs who've had hemispheric uh, middle cerebral artery strokes who don't require decompressive craniectomy, and medical management versus observation is enough to manage the edema that they have and get them through. To establish a 48-hour strict cutoff as a criterion, then it's probably not very practical, and I think we all agree on that. Uh, just looking at the uh, overall uh, paper here, I wanted to uh, ask you uh, about which patients you would consider then to not be good candidates for decompressive craniectomy. We've discussed a lot about favorable outcomes uh, within 48 hours, beyond 48 hours. Yep. And regardless of age, younger than 60 or older than 60, what factors would you consider then if you have a patient in your ICU with a hemispheric stroke? Who would you not offer this procedure to? Yeah, that's a very good question and also a very difficult question. Well, for example, to, to, so, so in, in the current cohort, um, which consisted of 66 patients, uh, 11 patients were older than 60 years. And um, only one of them survived with a favorable outcome, whereas um, uh, five of them uh, survived with the Glasgow Outcome Scale 3, and four of them died. So then, yeah, the question, of course, um, do you offer um, such a um, surgical procedure to, um, to, 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 the, to the older uh, patient group? If one survives, yeah, well, at it's, it's questionable. Some of my colleagues wouldn't offer it. I, I think you can also discuss it beforehand in detail with the family that, that, that you might try it and that uh, there is a, about a 10% chance of good outcome. It's, it's, it, it, it is a very difficult subject uh, also because I've, 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 I've encountered so many uh, patients who, um, who have a, um, a poor outcome but who are quite enjoying life um, uh, but that's of course also dependent on, on, the, on, the, on the whole context of, of the life of that patient. Uh, how is his family support? Um, uh, where do they live? Are there, uh, is there enough uh, money available to uh, offer them uh, uh, good rehab? These are all such subjective factors that could make a big difference whether a patient um, will eventually be happy with the fact that he underwent surgery or not. 
Um, so I think it's, it's uh, the, the, the longer I'm in neurosurgery, the more difficult it is to, to make such decisions. At least that's my, uh, that's my experience. Thank you for that. And a lot of times it can be an ethical sort of conversation with the family. You know, it's possible that the patient may be older and may have a left-sided infarction and perhaps may not have as good an outcome as somebody who may have a right-sided uh, stroke. And, um, absolutely, absolutely. I, 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 I remember a case from last year where a, uh, it was a retired math teacher uh, who, uh, who got a, a dominant-sided stroke. He, uh, well, his, his, his main thing in life was reading and, uh, and attending conferences. Uh, so we, we, we discussed the potential outcome in detail with his wife and, and children, and they said that you know, speech was so incredibly important for him that he would not survive with a considerable speech deficit. So we eventually decided not to perform the surgery, and um, he eventually died actually. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I think it, 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 it takes such a uh, detailed conversation with, uh, with the family and, and, and other relatives before you uh, uh, can make such um, uh, decisions. Yeah. You make a great point. You know, I think it's important to recognize that despite, you know, as surgeons, despite our best um, uh, intentions in your paper, all comers in 66 patients, favorable outcomes were achieved in you know, only 39% of the patients. And overall, yeah. that number may be considered, you know, if you're optimistic, that could be considered a good number given how severe the pathology is and given how low the chance of survival is. But I think we should still recognize that it's, it's still a grim outlook. 39% Absolutely. is, is yeah. necessarily, you know, a very favorable number after a procedure, an invasive procedure like this. And like you said, I think it's important to make the families aware of that and make sure that they understand that before they proceed with a very, you know, invasive and aggressive procedure. Yeah, I fully agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You know, this was a truly wonderful discussion uh, with everybody. Um, you know, if there's any other questions amongst the team, you know, we have a moment. Um, otherwise, you know, I'd love to thank all the participants, uh, Dr. Uh, Vander McCoff, um, Dr. Siddiqui, Dr. Davies, and Dr. Zasani. Thank you. I think this was a great discussion and very insightful for uh, for the listeners, and and for everybody that uh, goes onto the website or, or reviews the CNS podcast, you can always uh, click through and obtain CME credit for what you just listened to, and then of course you can check out more upcoming podcasts that are uh, happening every month. So thanks again for everyone's time, and uh, this concludes the Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast for March. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all.